You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Simon Carswell in New Hampshire on how Hillary Clinton is fighting the last three-week campaign and facing into the likelihood she will actually win. And in Budapest, Dan McLaughlin on the commemoration of the Hungarian uprising of 1956 and on the grotesque irony of Prime Minister Viktor Orban's claim to carry the mantle of that revolution. And on a very different note, Catherine Cleary talks about her recent visit to the world's number three restaurant, the eye-wateringly expensive Eleven Madison Park. The US presidential uh, rolls on remorselessly, uh, but in the wake of the third TV debate, Hillary Clinton has opened up a clear lead in the polls on, on Donald Trump. Is this an unbridgeable lead? And the opportunity to expand her campaign into traditional red states like Arizona and Georgia it wasn't once unthinkable, but she's putting in really quite a lot of resources there. Simon, tell us where and how. Uh, and the she's stepped up an ad campaign and she's using people like Michelle Obama in these states. Yeah, she's really taken the fight to the Republicans. This is no longer just about Donald Trump and the presidential election. This is about control of Congress. Um, and there's so much at stake in this election, given the number of appointments that need to be made or likely to be made at the Supreme Court. Um, so what she has done in the last two weeks is her campaign has plowed money into Arizona, a state that's been Republican since the 1990s. She's put more money um, into all the important swing states, the likes of Ohio, Florida, Pennsylvania, with a view to trying to get the down ticket, down ballot candidates in uh, so that they can potentially tip the majority in the uh, Senate back from the Republicans and potentially the House of Representatives, although I think that's a stretch given that Republicans have their biggest majority in the House since the 1920s. So, But she's, she's at least trying, and the fact that you're seeing... Um, one of uh, Hillary Clinton's most effective surrogates, Michelle Obama, was in Arizona last week. And they're also putting money into Georgia, which hasn't voted for uh, Democrats since the 1990s, and also into state races and Senate races in um, Indiana and Missouri. So they're really seeing an opportunity here, mainly because Donald Trump is just doing so appallingly in the polls. Um, 538, the polling website, has her chances of winning the presidency up at 86%. So Hillary Clinton sees as potential coattails for some other candidates running in this election on November 8th. And this is also about the Electoral College for herself in terms of, of trying to, to get a landslide uh, in, in the Electoral College. Uh, at the moment, what are the, the states most likely to tip? Well, <clears throat> you're seeing the battleground states, uh, states that were originally swing states, are, are really democratic-leaning, the likes of Virginia and Colorado, where Donald Trump might have thought he had a chance two to three months ago. She's in the order of about seven, eight points ahead in each of those. Uh, she's ahead in Pennsylvania. So she has um, this massive advantage in the Electoral College uh, on the way to getting 270 votes. But if she can close off um, Trump uh, in Arizona and Georgia and prevent him from retaining those states, then there really is no path at all uh, for Trump to the 270. Uh, and it just goes way beyond these swing states and it's extended the electoral map to these new battleground states. So it really kind of epitomizes this um, strange election that we're that we're seeing and also just how divisive a candidate Donald Trump is. And the Electoral College uh, system, though, is is a winner-take-all system, isn't it? So that sort of she takes Arizona, she takes all the votes from Arizona. 
She does, yes. There's only two states that it's not winner takes all and they're not really in play. They don't figure Nebraska and Maine. Um, so because the Democrats have strong support in the cities with the big populations and the, those big states, the likes of New York and California, have uh, such a large number of electoral votes that that really is what gives the Democrats and Hillary Clinton the advantage going into this election. But Donald Trump really needed to hang on to, uh, really needs to hang on to North Carolina, absolutely needs to hang on to Arizona and Georgia if he's any chance. So this really shows um, uh, the Clinton campaign seeing a massive opportunity uh, in this election. And the fundraising lead is still very strong. It is. She's way ahead. And you're now seeing um, President Obama coming out quite strongly. His approval ratings are very high. They're in the high 50s. So he's using that to the party's advantage. Um, and he's not just um, campaigning on um, on Hillary Clinton's behalf, but he's campaigning on all the Democrats running in congressional races. We, he was at a fundraiser in California um, at the weekend, and he went very aggressively for uh, one of the Republicans running there, Daryl Issa. So he's 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 really uh, coming out and swinging for all Democrats and not just for Hillary Clinton. So he, like the Clinton campaign, sees opportunity in this election. Um, I think the Senate is very uh, it's very likely to tip back into Democratic hands, which would give a President Hillary Clinton enormous support on the Hill for passing legislation. Um, I think the House it's a 60 seat majority roughly that the Democrats have. Oh, sorry, that the Republicans have in the House. So I think it would be a real struggle for them to tip that back, given the fact that so many of these district, uh, congressional districts in the House races have been gerrymandered since 2010 and the, the Republican control of state legislatures across the country. So I think that'll be a struggle to win back House races. But they're definitely trying very hard to win back um, seats that they probably thought were, were outside their grasp. You're not suggesting, like Donald Trump, that the election system, the electoral system, is rigged. <laughs> well, it, it is. It, it, certainly, Democrats feel it was rigged in in the, after the 2010 uh, gerrymandering that went on, where Republicans redrew lots of congressional maps, and really, there's only about 30 to 40 um, House of Representatives seats that are actually in play. The biggest fight that um, Congressmen and women have on Capitol Hill is their primary battles. It's not actually their general election battles against members of the opposite party. It's really um, for the Republicans taking uh, taking on far more conservative primary challengers uh, before there's ever talk of a general election fight. It sounds like a bit like the Irish electoral system, where your worst enemy is always the fellow in your party who's trying to take your seat off you. Now, the you're in New Hampshire at the moment, uh, where you were watching a debate last night, I think, with with. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren supporting Hillary Clinton, but also basically on the stomp for a, a local uh, Democratic uh, Senate candidate, Maggie ha Hassan. And we have a short clip here. Donald Trump disrespects, aggressively disrespects, more than half the human beings in this country. He thinks that because he has money, that he can call women fat pigs and bimbos. He thinks because he is a celebrity that he can rate women's bodies from one to 10. He thinks that because he has a mouthful of Tic Tacs that he can force himself on any woman within groping distance. Well, I got news for you, Donald Trump. Women have had it with guys like you. 
That was Elizabeth Warren, who's a very powerful campaigner and in, indeed, some would say, better speaker even than, than, than Hillary Clinton. Uh, what was the mood at the meeting last night? Uh, well, it was um, very animated, as you'd expect, with, with Elizabeth Warren. She's, <clears throat> she's really effective, particularly up in these parts, given the strength of Bernie Sanders' support. San, uh, Warren comes from that progressive liberal wing of the party that, that, that Bernie Sanders was so effective at rallying during the Democratic primary. And you can judge just how effective uh, Elizabeth Warren is by the responses she gets from Donald Trump. He really, as Hillary Clinton said at the rally in Man- here in Manchester in New Hampshire yesterday, she, he re- she really gets under Donald Trump's skin and he responds with very vicious tweets. He calls her Pocahontas um, because of uh, claiming that she has Native American heritage. So she's very, very strong. She's very, very important for Hillary Clinton in New England because uh, Bernie Sanders did very well up here in the um, Democratic primary. Uh, he's from Vermont, uh, New Hampshire's neighboring state. And uh, Bernie Sanders was very effective at rallying the young person vote up here. And she was, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton were speaking at St. Anselm uh, College in Manchester. So it's very important that they rally the support. Very important that uh, she brings Elizabeth Warren on board because of the importance of the liberal wing of the party, that she can marry those two and get that strength of support, not just um, in this presidential election, but that she has the support of that side of the party if she is elected president, because um, she'll certainly need their support in the Senate. And likewise, Warren and Sanders will be pushing Clinton very hard to stick to some of the progressive promises that she's been making since she won the primary. But um, Warren is a very impressive speaker. And uh, it's interesting that the three times that Hillary Clinton has been to New Hampshire since she won the primary here, she's only ever appeared with Sanders and Warren, twice with Sanders, and then for the first time with Warren on Monday. So I think you're going to see many more appearances by Elizabeth Warren, given how effective she is in this campaign. And there is some talk about the Clinton camp beginning to put together a post-election cabinet and a team to run the country. There's something like 4,000 political appointments have to be made quite fast uh, when um, somebody is elected uh, president. Uh, Suggestion is that Elizabeth Warren will have a strong influence on who she appoints and particularly on who she doesn't appoint. Yeah, uh, she'll need that, that, that. She'll need the support of that end of the party. You've seen Bernie Sanders already talking about who she might appoint as Secretary of the Treasury. Now, the Clinton campaign is not going there. They're saying it's totally premature at this stage to be talking about that. Clinton herself was asked about it on the on her campaign plane by reporters the other day, and she says she's not thinking about that. Her focus is very much on November eighth. But again, given where Donald Trump is in the polls, I think this is the natural conclusion that people are jumping to. You know, you need to start thinking about your cabinet, given how far ahead you are in this race. Uh, but it is, as you say, it's a huge transition um, process, enormous number of appointments and many appointments that need to get approval by the Senate, where uh, if she has the number of Democrats she needs in the Senate, if they have the majority in the Senate, then she's going to need all those Democrats supporting her appointments when they come before, uh, when they come up in Capitol Hill um, for approval. But I think what's interesting about uh, uh, campaigning for the Democratic governor here in New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan, is uh, the Clinton and Warren had a real dig at Ke- Kelly Ayotte, the uh, Republican a sitting senator up here. And she's tied herself up in knots over her support or lack of support and withdrawal of support 
for Donald Trump. And you're seeing that in many of the close Senate races around the country. Uh, there's a kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't uh, approach to, to Donald Trump. If they support him, they win over a lot of his, uh, a lot of his uh, conservative supporters, a lot of his hard right supporters that, that are in these states. Um, and, and if they don't support him, they alienate those people. So really, they're in a bit of a bind, uh, a lot of these Republican Senate candidates, when it comes to how they deal with Donald Trump and their own campaigns. Very rough for them, I'm sure. Listen, thank you very much, Simon. You're listening to The Irish Times. Over the weekend, Hungary marked the rising in 1956 when its people stood up against Soviet rule and briefly fashioned a new state based on the idea of democratic socialism. It was crushed with great force and brutality by a 100,000-strong army of Russian and Warsaw Pact troops. 2,500 Hungarians died, 13,000 would be jailed, and several hundred, including Prime Minister Imre Nodz, were executed. 200,000 fled across the borders to the west. Dan, memories are very strong still. That's right. These are stories, obviously, that that every Hungarian grows up with. There are still a lot of people around who uh, were here in 56 and took part in the events. Many of those people, as you said, who went abroad have, have since returned. They returned to Hungary after the fall of communism. So the stories and the uh, about those events of 56 are still very much alive. It was an extraordinary event in which the, the revolutionaries went out, took over the streets of Budapest, took over parts of, of other major towns. Um, and all this was a drive towards to creating what uh, the leader of the Hungarian government at the time called uh, communism with, uh, with a human face. Um, it was a more, they were looking to forge a more liberal brand of communism, a distinctly Hungarian communism, if you like, free from the diktats of the Kremlin at the time. This took place just three years after the death of Stalin. So there were questions all over the, the Soviet bloc and all over the Soviet Union as to what was ahead for communism. Would the satellite states be allowed to choose their own paths, forge their own styles of communism in keeping with the demands of the local population, national traditions and so on? And this was really the most dramatic attempt up to that point to break with the Kremlin, to, to forge a distinctly national style of, of communist rule. But effectively, it, it, it ran beyond what Imre Nodj and the people around him hoped for at the time. The revolutionaries went further on the streets than, than he intended. And after leaving for a few days, pulling back, the Soviet troops then returned with the, the massive force that you mentioned in that introduction, and the, the revolution was crushed in, in extremely bloody fashion. And one of the first acts in, in uh, 1989, after the form, fall of communism in Eastern Europe, was the reburial of Imre Nudge. Yes, uh, that was extraordinarily powerful and symbolic for the Hungarian people, sort of reclaiming their history, a history that hadn't really been, obviously it had been talked about in homes and privately among Hungarians, but it hadn't really been fully addressed in the aftermath of 56 and the re-establishment of a Moscow-approved government uh, here in Hungary. So the reburial of Nodj was, was a, a Hungarian reclaiming of their past and a determination to break with Moscow domination. It was also the moment, as we look back, when we see Viktor Orban, the current Hungarian prime minister, really stepping forward onto the, onto the political stage here. Amid all the speeches uh, and the great emotion of that day during the, the state reburial of Imre Nodj, Orban, who was then a young uh, liberal anti-communist leader, stepped onto the stage, made a very powerful speech. And even though it had been agreed privately, 
between him and other organizers of those events that no one would make a, a, a direct demand on that day for the Soviet troops to withdraw. Orban went against that agreement and he did make that demand from the stage. And that immediately propelled him to great prominence in the country. It was a huge boost to, to his profile and his personal support. And from that point on, really, he became the key figure around which the pro-democracy movement coalesced in, in, in that time of transition in 1989 and afterwards. Now, the commemorations this weekend uh, were led by Orban, who, who is very much now not a liberal, but a nationalist uh, ruler who has, uh, and who has claimed really ownership of, of the rising, uh, although his involvement in, in, the, in the rising was marginal, if, if, if any. He, he used the opportunity this weekend to have a real go at the European Union, describing it as the new Soviet Union. Absolutely. His own transformation and the transformation of his Fidesz party, that's the ruling party, that, that he formed back in 89 and which, which was one of the key movements in, in the transition to democracy. It's moved from being a sort of centre-centre-left movement to being a conservative populist movement with the strong nationalist streak, as you described there. And he and his allies have effectively co-opted 56. Uh, this is what we saw again on Sunday. They, have they, they portray themselves as heirs to 1956, heirs to the legacy of the freedom fighters of 56. And they claim to be still battling really for Hungary's freedom. They say that instead of facing uh, the Soviet threat, the threat from the East, we're facing a threat from the West, from a Brussels which wants to take sovereign powers away from Hungary, which wants to dictate to Hungary on matters like uh, the refugee crisis. And Orban says that his he and his allies are the only people that really have Hungary's national interests at heart when it comes to key issues like the refugee crisis. He's trying to, not just now, but he's done this for over previous years as well, over really the last decade or so. He's basically tried to um, portray himself as an embodiment of the national interest. So anyone who is against Orban is effectively against Hungary. Uh, but how did he square the, the warmth with which Hungarian refugees were were greeted in the West um, and then were embraced and and, and resettled uh, with his own barbed wire fences against uh, against uh, Syrians and that they're, they're really his virulent op opposition to an EU policy of sharing refugees around. Well, certainly in these official commemorations over the over the last uh, few days, Hungary uh, the, the government has tried to play down any connection and avoid. Uh, any debate on this, uh, anyone who has, who has tried to raise this issue uh, and question them over their current treatment of migrants and refugees and, and comparing it to what you say was a very warm and open reception that the 200,000 or so Hungarian refugees got back in 1956, um, he's tried to shut down that debate entirely. But talking to people around, uh, around Budapest, talking to people back in 56, who did leave the country then as refugees, they too are very, are very split on this issue. Some of them say, they get very angry actually and say, there is absolutely no comparison between Hungarians in 56. We fled communist oppression. We fled this vicious crackdown on, um, on a freedom, on a, on a, on a freedom fighting movement. Um, and we, we went effectively legally, they say. They, they were law-abiding. Um, they said they went in peace. They, they, they offered no threat to the societies that they moved into. And they claim at the same time that 
uh, as Orban does, the, the mostly Muslim refugees and migrants moving into Europe over the last year or so represents a security threat, a threat to the traditional culture and Christian identity of Europe. Um, this very much tallies with the message that the government has been pushing extremely hard and with an extremely expensive media campaign over the last 12 months or so. There are lots of Hungarians who disagree with that as well. And their voices were heard and their whistles were heard and their boos and jeers were heard on Sunday at the um, at the commemoration events as well. There is also another irony in, in that Orban is, is within the European Union, the strongest supporter of Russia's strongman uh, Putin. And it does, it does seem to square rather oddly with the fact that the Russians were the ones who put down the Hungarian Revolution. Yes, that's another uh, major shift that we've seen um, in, in Orban's political career since 1989. Um, fiercely anti-Moscow anti and anti-authoritarian at the time, he's now not only cozying up to Putin in various ways, he's one of the critics of the sanctions regime against Russia over Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Um, he's... Um, He's also signed a, a, a huge deal with the Russian um, atomic energy, state atomic energy, energy agency to expand Hungary's only nuclear reactor. A very, very controversial deal here. And the terms of that deal have been made a state secret. So no one's entirely sure what the details of that immense deal are. So there is a lot of criticism here and a lot of concern over moves towards not only to, to move closer to Putin. Um, and there were comments, I think, last year from, from Orban when he openly said that he, he, the, the Hungary that he envisaged is an illiberal state, which also chimes with, um, with what we see being created in, in, in Russia under Putin. At the same time here, there are uh, fears over press freedom. The, the main leftist opposition newspaper, Nebsobodshag, was shut down just a couple of weeks ago in what journalists say is a, a clear blow against freedom of the press and uh, what they call a clear reaction to their uh, repeated exposure of corruption scandals involving people who are very close to Orban. So there is this general drift towards a more illiberal state allegedly a more authoritarian state, which, um, which does concern a lot of people, but which the, 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 the party around Orban and his allies insist is necessary to make the very dramatic changes that Orban claims are still essential for, for Hungary to get over the communist era and, and wipe away everything that remains, all the, all the wreckage that Orban still claims remains of that communist era. Thank you very much, Dan. The Irish Times restaurant critic Catherine Cleary has prompted angry protests from some readers for daring to eat in the world's number three restaurant, New York's 11 Madison Park. It was, she said, eye-wateringly expensive, but the food was divine. Not many readers will be able to follow her, but I wouldn't be surprised if her piece was avidly consumed. So what does a restaurant have to do to stand out like this? Our table for two, Catherine wrote, is an expanse of white linen and butter-soft black leather seating in an Art Deco room that would break your heart if you had a soft spot for that era. And she wrote of a plate of the simplest and loveliest thing, cured egg yolk and clams topped with shavings of corn and some thyme leaves. Catherine, what particularly stood out for you? Oh, it's, it's a bit cringy to hear my copy being read out like that. Uh, the whole thing stood out. I mean, it's you walk down Madison Avenue to get to this restaurant. It's in quite an extraordinary building, which was originally built to be a very tall skyscraper and then was much less tall in the end. So it's got this heft to it at, at ground floor level. So the room that you're in is 
Um, just a quintessential piece of New York in that kind of, you know, the, the building itself has been used in movies. Like much of the city, it feels almost familiar, almost like a film set sitting in it. And as I said in the piece, you can see the Flatiron Building, my favourite building in, in New York, out one window and Madison Park at the other window. And then this beautiful array of food arrives um, to keep you amused. And it was a it was a tasting menu that you took, yes. was it uh, without actually any a menu card? That's right. And the waiter to start off the meal said, uh, "We're not giving you don't get a menu. We're just going to bring you food." And then at the end, you get a little a little tin box, which I actually still have it in my handbag along with a lot of other detritus, um, a, a round tin box with a concertina of paper in it with each course uh, written on this. So, you know, that's a kind of a, a keepsake for your once in a lifetime. And so in case you can't identify some of the things. That yeah, I suppose so, yeah, if you have to, if you've forgotten what you ate. I got the impression, uh, maybe wrongly, that of tiny nibbles of food, what was once called cuisine minceur. Uh, it's not exactly about hearty eating or sating an appetite. Yeah, a tasting menu has that kind of small, tasty things rather than a big plate dinner approach. Um, you know, they, they don't tend to give you a big plate of meat and spuds in the middle of a tasting menu. Um, and partly that's a relief because I'm not sure anybody could eat, you know, full dinner portions, seven courses of them. So if you're eating seven or more courses, they need to be pretty small, um, not tiny. And these weren't, you know, little sort of x-rays on a plate size portions by any means. You didn't um, leave hungry. I didn't leave hungry. I didn't have chips afterwards. All right. And, but there was no meat. There was very little meat, which was really interesting. There was a little bit of meat in the, uh, the lobster boil, which was probably the, the least favourite of the, di my, the dishes that I got. And uh, it was kind of like boiled sausage, a little, little bit like Millionaire's Coddle, although they wouldn't know that reference in New York. Um, and there was some duck, but very, very little meat. Um, but that's how those restaurants are going, because it takes much more skill and craft to make vegetables and non-meat ingredients um, special in the way that meat can be. And how much many courses easy. did it work out at? Good question. I, I must take out my little concertina and count them. I think there were 12 items, not all of them courses. You know, some of them were tiny little mouthfuls. Mm. Now, British cookery critic Jay Rayner said very firmly uh, recently that when you eat in a restaurant you should drink the house wine and no other wine. He said it was, it was daft to go off uh, from the house wine. It's a very good test of the restaurant. Itself. But you could find yourself to champagne and, and a cup of tea. Yes. Uh, were you doing justice to the readers then? I think I was trying not to do the wine matching which probably would have tipped the bill over $1,000 um, easily over $1,000 because they will match each mouthful with a small glass of wine um, and again and I'm not sure how much that cost, but I felt that was taking a little too far over break, the top. Break the bank. Break the bank, yeah. Oh, right. Blanche a few faces in accounts. Well, the dinner for two um, with three glasses of champagne and a cup of tea came to $715.31. Uh, that, that included tax and, it, and service. It did, uh, which took a little bit of the sting out of it because that's always a big sting in, in New York restaurants. There's the tax and service element of it. Um, the restaurant used to be owned by Danny Meyer. He sold it to two chefs, but he has... Uh, a policy across his other restaurants that uh, there is no tipping. So service is included in what you pay at the end of the meal uh, and there's no, um, you know, obligation to tip. And how does that compare with other New York restaurants? Is, is that really at the top of the scale? Yeah, I mean, that it, the, the bill isn't broken down to tell yeah. you how much of it is service. Um, yeah. So, 
you know, you, I'm sure they could tell you, but uh, I didn't ask on the night. So no, but I, what I meant was the overall build and, and, and what that, I mean, that was, that's pretty steep. Certainly wouldn't be yeah. anywhere in Dublin. I mean, you, can, you, can. you could, the, the New York Times critic Pete Wells uh, famously reviewed Per Se, which is the other three star restaurant, um, which I've also eaten in uh, five years ago. Um, and because they eat in the restaurant several times, one of the bills on the night that he ate there with friends was $3,000. Um, so in per se, you can go go over a thousand dollars without really trying yeah. for a, for a meal for two. It's yeah. it's yeah, it's it's shocking. Well, this is dipping into the the wine list at three hundred four hundred dollars a bottle. Yes, it? not yeah. taking the Jay Rayner approach. You you talked about having having visited one of the the other uh, uh, great restaurants, and how, how in your mind does does this particular experience rank with them? You have you eaten, for example, in 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 El Bulli in in Spain or no? Unfortunately, El Bulli was closed before I was writing about restaurants, right. so I haven't eaten in El Bulli. I've eaten in um, Ferran Adria's brother's restaurants in Barcelona, and there and and in Tickets, which is um, an amazing eating experience. It's all about carnival and fun and parlor tricks and dry ice and things like this. That you know. It's it's just it's mind blowing. It's it's not. I mean, this is this is what's interesting about these restaurants in that chefs will talk about how they're not really just feeding you; they're giving you an experience, um, and giving you an experience sometimes means surprising you or jolting you out of your comfort zone, even making you feel a little bit uncomfortable. That doesn't happen very often. Most of these restaurants make you feel extremely comfortable. And actually, that was one of the aspects of the the Eleven Madison Park dinner was how much. Uh, comfort food was in there you know there were, there were little brioche rolls with camembert in them and they were just you know delightful um, not exquisitely high end you know things blown out of glass made of sugar you know those, those kinds of tricks they were just absolutely delicious and wonderful pieces and what of food. Is, What is it uh, about these restaurants that that get, gets them that third Michelin star? Michelin say the first star is for the food um, and then after that they're a little bit vague as they, as they are delightfully vague about lots of things as to what gets you a second star. A second star um, is, uh, according to the Michelin category, worth a detour because obviously the Michelin Guide was originally written to sell tyres so it was the idea you, you would have a Michelin Guide in your glove box as you drove around France and uh, you'd look at the map if you were going to a particular region and you would find you know restaurants worth a, worth a detour. Three, three stars is worth a special detour um, and actually that's uh, you know p- some of these restaurants have three star tourists who fly around the world just to eat in you know the, their trip to New York will just be to eat in 11 Madison Park and tick it off a list whether they share it on social media which is also a big aspect of eating in these restaurants and um, being part of the halo of fame and and celebrity that is around the chefs who cook in these restaurants so it's it's very interesting it's very it's a very interesting way of expressing who you are if you have that kind of money uh, and you're interested in food then that's the kind of thing you do um, but getting into them is, is pretty difficult so. yeah there's typically a waiting list for for a lot of them um, and the 50 best list which hit the scene about what 14 years ago now has has added another layer of impossibility to getting a, a table in certain restaurants. Um, 
You know, a lot of it is now online booking. A lot of restaurants are now taking full payment before you even sit down for your meal. Um, this is yeah, this is a huge part of the high end American restaurant scene now because uh, they they claim that you know people not turning up for dinner is costing them money. So if you really want to eat in my fabulous restaurant, then pay me the uh, the six hundred and fifty euro or whatever it is before you even arrive. You mean the and. And the bottle of wine that yes, you, you may exactly. drink. Exactly, you may, you may add to that. Yeah. Presumably you can go off what you've already paid for and add some more to it. Now, the, in the top restaurant list that, that we published, certainly, uh, three of the top ten were, were in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting that, that there was one in, in Peru, I think. There were, there were uh, maybe a couple of French ones. The, the Americans weren't dominating as, mm. as much as I, I expected that. Yeah, America hasn't dominated the list, although people feel that 11 Madison Park is probably going... They, they tend to shuffle the top three every year at that at that award ceremony. So, the, um, you know, there's a long kind of uh, wait to get to the top three and they tend to shuffle the award between whoever's in the, in the third. So, you know, some people would have, would have expected... There was a huge rumour last year that 11 Madison Park were going to win last year. They were moving to New York to announce the awards. So... It's a it's, it's an extremely political organisation. You know they have a lot of money invested in uh, in the brand, and it's associated with all kinds of other brands, uh, massive corporations like Nestle, who who own San Pellegrino, are behind this. So you know there's a there's a lot of big business in this. Yeah, Dublin must be a pale shadow. <laughs> like, it must be very dreary coming <laughs> back to to Dublin after this. Not at all. I mean, Dublin is very interesting. I became restaurant critic for the Irish Times at a time when the economy was tanking. Um, and I wondered, was it going to be a very short-lived career because, the, you know, it was just going to be writing about restaurants closing. And actually, the reverse happened. Restaurants opened in when the economy went down. Money that had been going into property went into restaurants. Uh, leases were cheaper and easier to find uh, and people had to work harder to persuade people to to spend money in restaurants in Dublin so food got better I mean we're still a long way off uh, where we could be in terms of the quality of restaurant food and I think uh, with rising rents and uh, more money in the economy that that edge that we got during the during the crash is is softening a little bit um, but no Irish food is very interesting and there's a whole generation of very interesting Irish chefs who are doing their own thing um, you know, obviously, the, there's huge influence now from other chefs, well-known chefs who, you know, are accessible uh, in ways that they never were in, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, if you think Instagram is, is, you know, it's only 10 years since all of that sharing is, is available to chefs and, and people can go and eat in restaurants virtually in, um, that they would never do. And you can go and find out what the courses are in all of these restaurants if you look at social media. Um and that has a huge influence on people who are trying to do something groundbreaking. And the best chefs, the ones that impress me the most, are the ones who take amazing Irish ingredients and do very little to them and just give them to you at their best um, with you know, very little done to them other than cooking them well. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Dan McLaughlin and Catherine Cleary and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.